On this prequel episode, we've got our Mortal Engines follow-up polls, we're learning about the media portrayal of the legal system, and previewing Legally Blonde. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. Uh, we're both sick, so we're a sound, probably sound a little weird, I sound a little off. I don't know if you do or not. Yeah, I guess I probably do. Eh, you don't sound too different. I sound a little better than you. Yeah, you were sick before me and have gotten better before me, so. Uh, it's been a fun, uh, it's been a fun few weeks, uh, moving and then sick and then sick again, so... We're going to do our prequel episode. Our very first thing that we always do on our prequel episode is we uh, give our little shout-outs to our patrons. We have two new patrons this week uh, for this prequel episode. I don't know when they joined, actually, but probably not this week. But we have two new ones to announce. First up, we have, at the $5 Hugo Award winner level, Alexis Walker. Thank you so much for joining the This Film is Lit family. Second $5 Hugo Award winning patron, Chad T, Mr. T's son, I believe. <laughs> so thank you to both of you for becoming new patrons at the $5 level. Hope you enjoy our bonus content, which we're lacking on. Again, we're moved now. Hopefully both not going to be sick anymore. We'll have some more bonus episodes very shortly for you. Sorry for the delay. As always, we also want to thank our Academy Award winner patrons who are $15 level. Uh, support us for $15 a month. We have, what are we at, six now? It's quite a few. Yeah. First up, we got Gratch. Just Gratch. Followed by Corey Cloutier. Cloutier? Cloutier? I don't know. Cloutier. <laughs> Cloud Corey Cloutier with a chance of meatballs. Shelby Suderman. Mr. Nobody. I want to be a badass aviatrix when I grow up. That's our lovely patron who changes their name every week to reflect the thing we're doing. And finally... Alina Deletkolova. Those are our Academy Award winner patrons. If you want to be among their ranks, you can just head to patreon.com slash this film is lit. Support us for $15 a month. You get priority recommendations, which is why we did Mortal Engines, if you've heard, because Shelby Suderman wanted us to. We have some more recommendations that have come in. I know, I think, I believe Corey Claudia just sent us one. Mm -hmm. I just saw it a few minutes ago, and it's already on our list. One of them was, and we were going to do it sooner than later but now we'll do it even sooner <laughs> we won't say what it is yet but all right let's go ahead and talk about our mortal engines listener poll follow-up so i have a pretty quick one this time we didn't mm -hmm. get a ton of listener feedback i don't know how many people have ever read this book i don't think a yeah ton. i don't know i'd never heard of the book until i don't know how many people have seen the movie because apparently fair. not a lot of people came out to the theater fair. for it fair uh the, the the episode did well though a lot of people listened to it so mm -hmm. Like, for a non-big, like, for non-like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings yeah. type thing. Like, it did good for the first week. Like, better numbers than a normal episode. Well, thanks, guys. Not like a lot. You know, we do good. But yeah, I was like, oh. All right. So it was popular for whatever reason. Nice. Um, so on Twitter, we had 11 votes in our poll. Um, six for the book, five for the movie. Approximately. Twitter doesn't give an exact count. They give percentages, so I yeah. guess. Um, and we had a comment from uh, Mr. Nobody. I assume the same Mr. Nobody of uh, Academy Award assume. winner Patreon you would fame. Assume. One would assume. They said, just finished the book. Better storyline in the book, but the YA level writing made it boring. Going to respectfully disagree, Mr. Ouch. Nobody. 
I'm giving this one to the film. I liked the color palette. <laughs> so at least there was something in the okay. film that was enjoyable. Um, and then over on Facebook, we had two votes. Both of them were for the book. And we had a comment from Anthony who said, I haven't read the book or watched the movie, but between the Mortal Engines Flophouse podcast episode and this episode, I think I might enjoy the books more. Um, engaging story, and more as an engaging story and the movie as a good, bad film. That's why I picked the book as better. There you go. All right. Those are our follow polls for Mortal Engines. Thank you to everybody who commented and voted. If you want to do that just follow us on all the social media platforms all right let's go ahead we got a learning thing segment this week we're learning about the media's portrayal of the legal system no matter what anybody tells you words and ideas can change the world it's wrong <laughs> i can assure you so we we know that movies and tv are both guilty of uh jazzing things up yeah um, and they they do that with pretty much everything. Everything. I, everything. I can't think of a single thing that screenwriters, directors, et cetera, et cetera, do not do that for. Real life's boring. <laughs> Real life is pretty boring. Or can be. And you know what is also especially boring? The legal system. Can be. <laughs> so it is definitely one of those things that gets, I feel like gets especially jazzed up. Yes. For the movies it and does. for TV. Yes. So to to pull an example um, from the film that we're talking about, Legally Blonde, um, at one point in the movie, this is not really a spoiler. I guess it's kind of a spoiler if you've never seen it. Um, but at one point in the movie, L, the main character, um, cites a Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruling that allows her in the movie that allows her to stand counsel in the main case during mm -hmm. the film, despite being a law student, um, that wouldn't happen you, yeah, in you reality. Can't, can't, you can't be counsel in a in a court case if you're not barred. I would go out on um, a limb and say, unless whatever this particular this, thing is this is a thing real thing. Apparently, does exist, but okay. there would there would be like way more loopholes that she would have to jump through. Yeah, like the movie portrays it as happening like very easily yeah. over the span of like oh. thirty seconds. Of course, yes. So according to what I found on the internet, there would be like way more loopholes she'd have to jump through, and it. It wouldn't even happen anyway because you would, she would have to have been a senior in law school and she's a freshman. She's like first year yeah. in the movie. So, you know, one of those cases where they take something where there is like a teeny tiny little nugget of truth yeah. and just kind of away we go with it. Yeah. I really, really should have gotten input. So uh, some of you people might know or may listen to one of the podcasts uh, that I'm a fan of is called Opening Arguments. It's a law podcast that breaks down like news uh, and local or current events uh, and breaks them down from a legal perspective. One of the hosts of the show is lawyer Andrew Torres. Uh, he's actually also the lawyer for Good, Bad, or Bad, Bad or Good, Bad Media LLC, which is me and Kyle's uh, company. Uh, he did all of our incorporating and stuff like that because uh, he works with small businesses primarily. But he is a Harvard law student he graduated from harvard uh and so he would particularly probably know about this massachusetts supreme judicial court thing this rule they may have also done legally blonde on their podcast for their patron feed they have they do popular movies and talk about how terrible the law in them is 
So there's, there may be, if you go check out opening arguments and check out their patron feed, they may have a specific episode about Legally Blonde. I'm not sure. I don't remember if they've done it or not yet, but they've done a yeah. bunch of movies. I wouldn't be surprised. That's maybe one of the better known, like, yeah. legal movies. Yeah, I mean, you got yours. You got your uh, My Cousin Vinny's and your yeah. Miracle on 34th Street and, you know, 12 Angry Men and whatnot. But yeah, it's a it's a pretty popular uh, law law movie. Although I actually, I'm not even sure how much law, like courtroom stuff, there is in the movie. I guess I'll find out. But like, because I, find she out. was like in school. I thought it was like, well, yeah. obviously, because that's this whole premise here. But there is obviously at least some courtroom stuff. Anyways, that's I'm done. Go ahead. <laughs> so when it comes to uh, the way that the media portrays kind of the legal system, um, the process leading up to a trial, particularly, was mm-hmm. what I mostly was able to research. Mm-hmm. Um. There is a lot of myths that abound. I have come up with a short list of five myths here. Um, so starting from the top, um, our first myth I am calling one team from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So um, the, yeah, the CSI. Yeah, yeah the idea. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about CSI yeah. later. Yeah. Um, so, but the idea that like or Law and Order or whatever. Yeah. Everybody at the crime scene is both a detective and a crime scene technician. Um, they all work really closely with the attorneys. Everyone testifies in court. The guys who do the my favorite is from CSI is the it's like Gil Grissom, who's like the head of the CSI department is like and he's like a bug specialist, at least in the original CSI is also the guy going like knocking through doors with his gun out like. <laughs> Like yeah. when they're like raiding the big bad guys at the end of the episode, when they're going to catch the big bad guy, he's like there with them with a gun and a bulletproof vest. Like, like everybody like, can do every job and they're all involved in every single step from yeah. start to finish, which is totally not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those different elements, those different jobs, they're all moving parts yeah. within um, a case. So like a crime scene technician might work at the scene of the crime and in the lab you might find that person in both of those places, but they generally aren't going to be involved in, like, investigating the case like a detective would. Yeah. Um, and a detective might gather evidence, but they're probably not also analyzing the DNA. No. Um, a lawyer is going to question a witness, but it's going to be as part of a trial, not as part of an investigation. Yeah. Not, at least, yeah, the prosecutor. I don't know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They they kind of they play fast and loose and everybody does everything. Yeah. In the TV shows, we have to have our main characters that we that's, love. We have to follow. That's them. the thing. It's boring. Yeah. I don't care about. I don't want to see lab technicians see and <laughs> watch them do their DNA analysis. Make the main guy do it. <laughs> um, so that was our first myth. Um, our next myth. I'm gonna talk about um, evidence processing speed. Um, we, I mean, we could just talk about, like, evidence processing in general. Mm-hmm. Um, TV takes it maybe a little more high-tech. Oh, for than sure. What, than what most places yeah. <laughs> would have access to. Absolutely. Um, but speed, I think, is something that really, really gets, like, cranked up mm-hmm. on TV and in the movies. Like, especially with some TV shows, um, I think it's pretty easy to get the idea that evidence can be processed, like, within a couple hours. Yeah. Um, And in some cases, it might be possible to get that evidence processed within a few days, but more likely weeks. Yeah. Months. Yeah. Maybe longer. The legal system takes years. The legal system is a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and there can be backlogs for a lot of different reasons. Um, but it's also it's time consuming to t- process evidence. It's also expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I have pulled an example here. It takes 90 days to test a rape kit. And it costs between a thousand and fifteen hundred dollars. That's the average time. I assume that's yeah. like the average it's time. It's like it an takes. average, yeah. Yeah, like how for long it takes to process. Because yeah, I'm sure it doesn't take that long to like do it. But it's just by the time it gets in the system, and then but somebody gets around to doing it, and blah blah blah. Yeah, it takes forever. Yeah, because of paper. Yeah, all kinds of nonsense. And speaking of evidence, that brings me up to our third myth: the myth that there will always be forensic evidence. Hmm. You're watching a TV show, you're watching a movie, there's almost always a smoking gun, mm-hmm. right? There's DNA left behind or a fingerprint that got overlooked until the last minute, etc., etc. Um, audiences expect to see that, and it does make for exciting storytelling, Yeah. Um, but it actually has some pretty serious real-world consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a real thing, it's called the CSI effect. So jurors expect to see that dynamic smoking gun evidence when they're in a real-world courtroom, which means that they're less willing to accept basic criminal trial evidence, and that creates an additional burden of proof for prosecutors, um, which can be a problem, um, considering that, you know, most criminal cases don't go to trial and get decided by juries. So the ones that do tend to carry the highest dangers or maybe the most severe punishments not the type of stuff where you want to run the risk of false acquittals or wrongful convictions yeah and that brings me to our fourth myth the myth that this is always going to be a super exciting process um everything is more interesting on tv and in the movies like we said um but it's work it's people's jobs just like any other job it's pretty much just a daily grind punctuated by the occasional excitement and interest yeah yes it's very boring yeah it's a lot of like paperwork Mm -hmm. a lot of paperwork you know it's not really as exciting as what you see on the screen um and then our fifth myth the myth that everything will always wrap up quickly and neatly and perfectly um process of building a case is slow can take weeks months years depending on what the case is once the investigation is over um that legal case can also take an incredibly long time lawyers build cases really carefully to give themselves the best chance at the outcome that they want um it's not just the rapid fire rat-a-tat-tat exciting back and forth courtroom questioning that you see on screen a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes yeah there's a lot of ways that the process of a trial can be dragged out for a long time yeah yeah and then there's a million appeals and yeah, so like once the... a million appeals there's a million things that can go wrong it's not always gonna be like a nice shiny bow at the end yeah i think one of the biggest uh things at least specifically in the courtroom that on opening arguments that he always talks about that is not a thing that is in every court thing ever is the surprise witness mm. where it's like oh i call the stand blank and they op- swing open the doors of the courtroom and there's the, this magic witness standing there that the defense or the prosecutor whoever had no idea about that's not how court 
That's no, not how that works. That's not how that works at all. You can't all. call surprise witnesses. Yeah. <laughs> not allowed. You're not allowed to just surprise no. the other attorney. <laughs> no. They're well aware of all the all the witnesses that will be testifying and all that sort of thing. So there are no surprise witnesses and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's no surprise evidence. All the evidence has to be entered ahead of time. And that's sort of like ex- barring like extreme circumstances, I think. But in general, like, yeah, there's not surprise evidence. There's not surprise witnesses. Uh, both court team or both the... Uh, uh, attorney teams have to know, you know, everything that's going on. And uh, like you're talking about with the sort of back and forth in the, the in the courtroom, it's that Andrew always talks about how no lawyer, no good lawyer will ever ask a question that they don't know the answer to. Yeah. So there's never like those surprises and stuff that you get in like real court or like in TV court shows and that sort of thing. It's not not so much of a thing in real life because. Yeah. They do a lot, like you said, it's a lot of research behind the scenes. Everything they want to know and the, the, or everything they need to know, they figure out ahead of time. The courtroom is just there to convince the jury. There's not. No, there can be theatrics to it, obviously. Yeah. And how you present that. <laughs> the old razzle dazzle. But there's no, you know, they're not. If you're surprised in the courtroom as a lawyer, you're bad at your job. <laughs> is what uh, I, I've kind of surmised from what I've heard. So, all right, that's it for our learning things segment. Let's go ahead and talk about Legally Blonde, the book. One of the reasons I wanted to come here tonight was to discuss our future. Of course. I plan on running for office someday. Warner. I think we should break up. What? Oh. <laughs> if I'm going to be a senator, I need someone serious. I'm seriously in love with you. I love you. Liar! This is the type of girl that Warner wants to marry. A lost. So Legally Blonde is a comedy novel by American author Amanda Brown um, with a copyright credit also going to uh, Bridget Kerrigan. More on that later. Oh, so is this stolen? Oh, this is this is a very interesting research time for me. Um, This book was actually self-published by Amanda Brown in 2001, the same year that the movie came out. Um, and then officially published in 2003. Um, the novel is based on Brown's experiences while she was enrolled in Stanford Law School. Um, she never actually received a JD, but mm-hmm. she was enrolled there for a, a year, I think. Yeah. I want to say. Um, Amanda herself calls the story only semi autobiographical. She says Elle Woods reminds her more of her mother than of herself. So make of that what you will. So how this book came to be, according to the research that I did, um, Amanda was enrolled at Stanford, and instead of studying or participating in her classes, um, she basically used it as um, time to observe people and gather material. She would write long letters to her friends, um, letting them know, all of her observations of the people that she had classes with. Um, and then she wrote Legally Blonde after a literary agent advised her to turn her original idea, which was going to be a book of essays, into a novel format. Um, she supposedly took a community college writing class, put together a manuscript, and then shopped the book around. She said she used pink paper to try to attract attention. Um, no book agents wanted it. Um, but the Hollywood people 
loved it. There you go. Lower standards. <laughs> Thus, Legally Blonde was born. Um, so she didn't really uh, have a lot of friends while she was at Stanford, um, as one could maybe imagine. Um, she did. There was one person um, who allegedly said that the film really did capture certain individuals who I will not name. So I thought that was kind go. of funny. Going back to uh, Bridget Kerrigan and her uh, copyright credit in this book. So I found some kind of differing um, information here. Apparently, there is a non-disclosure agreement that keeps either party from discussing this. There is also a rumor that... They co-wrote it and then had a falling out, and then Amanda paid Bridget a lump sum of money gotcha. and a copyright credit to go away. Okay. <laughs> um, one thing I did find um, in the summer of 2001, um, Bridget Kerrigan wrote to the alumni magazine at Harvard, um, where she, I believe, ended up graduating from. As the Harvard Law Bulletin reported in its spring issue... The story of a fashionable blonde turned law student, which I co-wrote in law school with my childhood friend Amanda Brown, is now a movie. Though we did not set the original story at Harvard, its venue has been shifted there for Legally Blonde. Look and you might see yourselves. So some like confirmation there, according to her, they co-wrote it. Yeah. Whatever happened post that yeah that's interesting um is yeah i don't know um and how much of the book was written by amanda brown how much of it was written by bridget kerrigan the world may never know wild but i read (laughs) as i was doing research for this i read the cattiest and most amazing personal profile that i've maybe ever read in my entire life about amanda brown Okay. Um, it was in the Phoenix New Times. I'm going to post it on our uh, Facebook and Twitter if anybody wants to read it. Okay. It's a little bit long. To me, it was worth it because it was so catty and hilarious. Um, so her family is from Phoenix. And the vibe that I got was that she is not well liked. Huh. And who is, written, who is this written by? I was just a reporter, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. just like a reporter for the for this paper. Interesting. Just like a local Phoenix paper. She went to wrong some newspaper. Reporter <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Wild. It was kind of a wild article. I'm gonna post it if anybody wants to read it. I thought it was <laughs> hilarious. All right, that's it for our book facts. Let's go ahead and talk about Legally Blonde, the movie. Reese Witherspoon. Do you remember when we spent those four amazing hours in the hot tub after winter formal? This is so much better than that. Legally Blonde. Oh, look how cute. There's like a judge in everything. Vote for Adam. Legally Blonde is a 2001 film directed by Robert Luketic uh, of The Ugly Truth, Killers, and Monster-in-Law. Basically, he directs romantic comedy films that all have that as exact same poster that's like a white background with a guy and a girl like leaning against each other's <laughs> backs. Basically, look, I'm not even kidding. All of his like most known for are all the exact same movie cover poster thing. He has a style. Yeah. What can I say? 
so the book was adapted by Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith. Uh, they're a writing team that wrote 10 Things I Hate About You, House Money, Ella Enchanted, hmm. and She's the Man. So it's the second of their uh, stories or films that we've done. Yeah. Uh, they spent two days on campus at Stanford doing research for their screenplay. Uh, both USC and Stanford refused to allow the movie to use their name. They asked if they could set the film at USC. Uh, this is a quote. They asked if they could set the film at USC, but images, but the images of her as an undergraduate and being in a sorority, we felt there was too much stereotyping going on. And that was said by Elijah May, who is the campus filming coordinator at USC at the time. So hmm. they didn't they didn't like the film or they didn't like the idea of their. Their, their university being in the movie. Uh, Reese Witherspoon spent time researching her character, apparently, by hanging out with sorority girls and going to dinner with them. She said of her research, quote, by going down to Beverly Hills, hanging out in Neiman Marcus, eating in their cafe, and seeing how these women walk and speak, I got into the reality of the character. I saw how polite these women are, and I saw how much they value their female friendships and how important it is to support each other, end quote. Hmm. So this is interesting. It's like the only thing I know about this movie. The famous bend and snap scene almost didn't make it into the movie. It wasn't in the original script. Apparently, it's not in the book, so that's a spoiler. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I unfortunately I kind of... kind of suspected yeah. it wasn't. The producer apparently wanted a B-plot for Jennifer Coolidge's character, Paulette, and uh, so the writers, uh, McCullough and Smith, brainstormed several ideas, including like a store robbery. I don't know what that has to do with the movie or whatever, but maybe she works at a store. But during one of their brainstorming sessions, McCullough came up with the idea of using a move, quote unquote, to get the UPS guy. And then co-writer uh, Smith invented the move on the spot. They said, quote, it was a completely drunken moment in a bar, end quote. And then Witherspoon has said, I have a feeling I'll be doing the bend and snap until I'm 95. So she has to do it everywhere she goes. <laughs> So the movie grossed $140 million worldwide against a budget of only $18 million, which made it kind of a sleeper hit for the studio. Made a lot of money, which is why they made at least one sequel, if not two. They made like two, I yeah. think, yeah. Uh, the movie has a 69% fresh score on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics praised Witherspoon's performance for elevating the film above its predictable structure and narrative. Basically, you know. It's an okay movie, but Ruth Witherspoon takes it to the next level. At the 2001 Golden Globe Awards, uh, the film was nominated for Best uh, Picture, Musical, or Comedy. And the same year, Reese Witherspoon was also nominated for Best Actress at the Golden Globes. Uh, now starts the few IMDb fun facts that are almost assuredly not true. As agreed in her contract, Reese Witherspoon kept all of her costumes after filming. Apparently, she had that one written in. I don't, again, this is who knows. All these, you never know. The IMDb facts are like 99% sure all made up. Uh, throughout the course of the film, Elle Woods, which was the main character, uh, Reese Witherspoon's character, has 40 different hairstyles. Supposedly. If I didn't have anything else to pay attention to while we were watching this, I'd keep a tally. Yeah, keep a tally. If you're watching the Yeah, movie. maybe somebody else can keep a tally for us. Don't do that. <laughs> and then finally, I thought this was interesting. Uh, these are all actresses who were also considered for the role of Elle Woods. Charlize Theron, Gwyneth Paltrow, Alicia Silverstone, Katherine Heigl, Christina Applegate, Mia Jovovich, and Jennifer Love Hewitt. That's a list that makes sense. It all makes sense. Yeah, those all make sense. Yeah. Those are all like the people that you would get for this role. Especially at that time period. Yeah, for sure. So that's all I got. I, it's a... Uh, we'll see. Well, I'm excited. <laughs> I am too. I like this movie. Um, I started reading the book. It, so. And 
I'm really amped because I think it's going to be a bad book. Oh, yeah. Like, I, it seems kind of poorly written so well, far. Well, it wouldn't surprise me based on the, your little book re- uh, research you did there about yeah about nobody and wanting now... to publish it and then the movies being <laughs> like, we can make this into a movie, though. You guys don't know this yet because we haven't had occasion to talk about it on the podcast. We've never done a poorly written book. Oh, yeah. But the only thing I love more than a bad movie is a bad book. (laughs) Oh, I love bad books. This is going to be fun. I'm excited. I'm excited, too. So in one week's time, come on back and you'll hear our thoughts and Katie's uh, vicious breakdown, teardown of the Legally Blonde book. Uh, until that time, if you want to do us a favor, you can go to patreon.com slash thisfilmslit. Support us. That would be great. You can also follow us on all social media. That's also great. You can also do us a big favor and give us a review on iTunes. That's super cool, too. And if you don't do any of that stuff, that's fine. Until that time, guys, girls, not by there, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being awesome. awesome. Don't get sick. It sucks. It's real bad. It's real bad.